0: 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You know, we live in a psychologized era. Wouldn't you agree? You know, I mean, what we're what we talk about is often psychology and what we think of how we think of ourselves has changed. Sociologists tell us that we've started to look at ourselves differently. We've started to ponder ourselves because we look at ourselves from a therapeutic angle. Josh Hostetter is uh, he's a counselor. He sits like right about there. And I was I realized he was going to be here and I was thinking about this whole counseling thing. And then I was like, you know, what is Josh going to think of this? And then he left the room. And now I feel better, just so you know. So now I can talk in freedom, you know. Um, but, but, but we think of uh, ourselves in psychology, And I remember when I was a kid, there's this kind of like thing that we do. And I don't know what book it came from. And this is why I'm glad Josh isn't here to tell me I'm wrong. But, but there's this thing where we ca- talk about like, I am the me. Remember this? I am at one with the me. And it was like this mantra that people said. Did anybody ever hear of this? And when I was a kid, like people, that would be in psychological journals and in little things that I would read. I grew up in a pastor's family, and we would talk about this stuff. You know, is it okay to think psychologically? And of course, today, I do think it is. But the point behind it was, you kind of have to get yourself centered, You've got to understand yourself. And if you can start to comprehend yourself, then something changes within you. And so you've got to kind of breathe. And I remember a movie, watching a movie as a kid, and it said this guy was in a, a psychologist's office, and the psychologist says to the guy, You've got to say, uh, You are the me. So the guy says, I am the me. And he says, I am at one with the me. I am at one with the me. And he repeated it, and then he said, This is the me breathing. And then he had to listen to himself breathe. And at some point, the guy just started cracking up, which would be like, that would be what I would do, probably, in that sort of setting. Now, the Christian version of that, I think, is uniquely different in some ways. Um, It's not just whether we're the me. And you can, for a second, listen to yourself breathe and decide you're actually there and that'll be fine. But there's actually a bigger truth in this passage. And what it asks us to think about is this. We are created in the image of God. So in other words, we're not just saying we're the me. We're the me who's created in the unique image of God. Do you believe that this morning? You do? Okay. you all agree that you're created in the image of God? Now, everybody look to your right. Robert? Right. (laughs) Robert looked at Maggie. That's left, anyway. Right. Yeah, right. Do you agree that the person directly to your right is created in the image of God. That might be slightly more difficult than to think you yourself are created in the image of God. Now look to the left. Do you, get, do you think the person to your left, do you see the image of God over there? Yes or no? This is the sort of thing pastors think up when they get to be in front and they don't have to do it. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's really good for me, bad for you. You're created in the image of God. And what the Bible tells us is that that image has gone broken. It's been broken. And what sin has done, what we have done to ourselves with our rebellion to God, is we took what he created us to look like and we've marred it. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily completely gone. You can still see vestiges of what remains out of God's creation in each one of us. And frankly, the the center of creation, the center of everything God has done as far as creating on this planet, is sitting right next to you, to the left or to the right or in your own seat. God loves us. Not church people, not Christians, not people at Parker Ford Church. He loves people. He loves human beings, okay? And so this morning, everything that we have to talk about has to come into the, kind of, come in from the lens or through the lens of understanding that you are you, and it's not an accident, that God created you to be you, and you reflect a unique part of who he is. You, he created you to be in the image of himself. That is the second greatest gift God ever gave a person. That is the second greatest gift. The rest of this time this morning, we're going to talk about the single greatest gift he gave us. My last church, we started to realize that, you know, we got to a place where the church, when I got there, it was kind of an unfriendly church. Honestly, it was just unfriendly. And we we started to pray about that, and the church grew and it got a little more friendly, got a little more enthusiasm going, got some social stuff going, And, and, and people started to come in. And when people started to come in, they came in with problems. Um, problems like you and I have, probably. And they walked in the door and there was this like call for w- lives to change. Okay, And so people would walk through the door and they would ask and they would say, okay, we need to do something differently as far as our lives are concerned because we can see that you're preaching and talking about this God and we can see ourselves and we see a gigantic distance between us and God. And so we came up with this strategy to try to get people connected to God. Now this passage, the reason I'm talking about this, is because I believe it's asking you to believe. It's asking you to believe that the presence of God is the way he restores the image that's been broken in your life. The image of God that you were created to reflect has been broken and the way to get past that is to get his presence in your life in a powerful way. And frankly, the whole Bible, 66 books long, is actually about people either getting that presence in their lives and changing, or it's also sometimes about them forgoing that and deciding not to walk in the presence of God and walk apart from it, and it's about what happens. Those are the two, sto- those are the two things what, that happens. And so the second greatest gift God has ever given you is that he created you in his image. The first gift, is that he, or the greatest gift, is the one where he actually tries to restore you with his presence. And that's what this passage is all about. And so as pastors on a pastoral staff, we decided that we needed to spend time getting the presence of God into people's lives. And I remember that this we had all sorts of examples of this, but we had this one woman who came into our church, and because of confidentiality, I'll change her name. I want you to know I wouldn't tell you her actual name, but I'll call her Patty. And Patty came into our church, and she walked in right off the street, had never come on a Sunday morning, just walked in on a weekday, and the office was open, and she said, I need to meet with a pastor. And the secretary called me up and said, you're the only only one here. Can you meet with her? And I said, yeah. And Patty and I went to a a room kind of off the secretary's office and we sat and we talked. And she said, "I, I have a problem. I said, okay. She said, people don't like me. I said, okay, well, you know, that's something that happens a lot in this world. I mean, it might not be your problem. That might be the other person's. No, it's my problem. I said, okay, why? Well, it's everybody. Nobody likes you? Nobody. She said, I'm on my third marriage. And my husband lives about eight states away, and he won't come visit. I have, I have all these kids, and they don't want to see me. I don't, I, I, they don't even call me on Christmas. They don't want to talk to me. She said, there's something about my face. And I looked at her face, and it was clenched and tightened. And she said, there's something about my face that just communicates that I don't like people. And so they bounce off of me in this weird way, and I need something to change. And I figured the church is the last place that probably I can go to. I've tried everything else. So we sat in the office and I said, okay, listen, we've decided on this whole technique where we're going to sit in the office and you and a pastor are going to meet once a week. And you need to set aside an hour to an hour and a half of time. And we're going to read the scripture together, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God's presence to do something. And who knows what will happen. Honestly, I I think I said, I don't know what will happen. So we met week in, week out. And, in fact, nothing happened. We read some scripture. It was good. I prayed for her. That, too, was okay. And she walked out and said, I'll see you next week. You know, it was one of those things. It was like the dentist, you know. And when you're a pastor and you get compared to a dentist, that's not a good moment. And after about three or four weeks of this, you know, I kind of started to think, you know, I don't know if this actually works. Maybe I don't have the presence of God Maybe I'm reading the wrong version of the Bible, you know. Maybe I'm reading the NIV and I need to go back to the KJV or the NASB or, you know, there's all these B's you can check out. Uh, Maybe I need to do this or that. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. But I decided we're going to pray, and I told the staff we're going to pray. Let's all talk to God and ask God to bless Patty. And, And Patty came in on the fifth week. On the fifth week, she came in. And we sat just like all the other weeks, and we read a passage of Scripture, and I don't even remember. It wasn't very remarkable. And, of course, again, I prayed. And something just cracked. It was like somebody else was there. Her face had often broken down into tears as she thought about all the people who didn't like her, about her own kids who didn't like her, about her husbands, who didn't like her, about the people who she worked with, who didn't like her, or who had worked with, she didn't even have a job at that point. And she sat there just crying before me week in and week out. But this week something changed. And you could see the muscles in her face start to relax. And you could see the tension drain out of her. And she started to go, something is changing. And she didn't have words for it, and I, I don't know that I have words for it. When I was thinking of this illustration and telling you this story, I thought, I don't know if I can tell anybody how this happened. You know, it was that weird. And she sat there and we prayed and at the end of it, she just said, I'm released, I'm done. And she walked out of the office with her face kind of still wet, but excited. I mean, you might have said she was almost glowing, you know what I'm saying? Except there's no actual light. She walked out, she walks past the secretary's desk. And so help me, the secretary looks at me and said, what happened to Patty this week? Like, she's all, like, walking differently. She's, and week in and week out after that, she came in, and she would meet with me, but it was always a different Patty. From that moment on, the, the, the meetings we had changed from being that of, of asking God to bless her to being how does she learn and grow in her faith, and it changed her. And those meetings continued to happen for a while, but it was more of the discipleship sort of thing because the presence of God had entered into her life. You know, I don't know when people become Christians. It's really tough to tell. You know, when somebody decides to be a follower of Jesus is not always something you can go, it happened this time, this day, this year. You know, you don't always know that stuff. But somehow this woman after weeks of saying I believe in Jesus said, you know, this week I believe in Jesus in a different way. And when she walked out of the room, she believed in Jesus in a different way. You know what I'm saying? There was excitement and enthusiasm and she came to worship services and was all thrilled about it. She called me just after I moved here a couple of years ago and she wanted me to know that she said after years of not getting an education, she said, I found the courage after this experience to go back to college and I want you to know I just graduated. And I was so excited. I mean, just, you know, for somebody at 50-some years of age to just pick up and decide after years of not having the confidence to go to college, she decided to conquer a mountain in her life and she went off and did it. I saw her a couple weeks ago when I was home for Thanksgiving, and she just comes up, gives me this big hug, doesn't say much, and walks away. That's it, you know? Because it wasn't me who changed her. We all know it was not Josh Whitework who changed this lady. Patty was changed by the spirit of the living God. And something entered her life, and she was radically transformed. When we are people who are created in the image of God and have this broken image, It's the presence of God that restores us. And anything less, anything less, not church programs, not good pastors, not good preaching, not good music, none of that stuff, not giving money, none of it sets us free to be what we were called to be in the living Savior. We have to go back, and we have to invite the presence of God, and frankly, we don't have to just do it once. I think this is something we have to do consistently. This passage that I'm reading for you this morning, 2 Corinthians, it starts out with this words. It says, Paul says, and that's who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, it says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And you might not know Paul, but he was a guy who sometimes flew off the handle and said things, I don't know that he regretted, but they could be harsh. And there are no harsher letters in the, in the Bible than 1 Corinthians. And he wrote that one, and people were really offended by it. And now he's trying to be kind of soft, Okay. But he defends his being harsh and soft by saying, listen, you've got to know that I have a hope in a Jesus, and that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is greater than you can possibly imagine. When you come into contact with this Jesus, and you see people who are failing in some way, you want to go after him, and you want to say, look, you missed the boat. And so that's what he says. Listen, I am bold, I'm speaking boldly, because this Jesus is just that awesome. And I'm going to keep speaking boldly, and I'm going to love you, I'm going to hug you, I'm going to hit you, I'm going to do all these things as a good pastor. But they all have to do with the fact that I realize that we all are worshiping, living, and walking in sight of a great Jesus. And then he goes on to say this. Let me read for you. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. You may never have read Exodus in your life, so I have to kind of catch you up to speed. But the book of Exodus tells a story about the people of Israel. After they get out of Egypt, they go to this mountain where Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments and he stands in the presence of God. And when he comes back down, his face literally glows. He's been in so close a proximity to God. The connection is so strong between him and God that his face glows. And it's not clear exactly how the people took that, but it was a little bit weird. You know what I'm saying? Something was strange. And so what happened is he put a veil over his face and he let them stay distant. In fact, the people of Israel say, listen, Moses, we have a great God. He's an awesome God, right? And Moses is like, yep. I was up on the top of this mountain and God is great. The thunder is still echoing, you know, the lightning is flashing and all this stuff is occurring that lets us know that God's presence is real. And they say, well, we believe in this good God. We believe in this great God, but we don't want to talk to him. Don't make us talk to him. In fact, Moses, why don't you go up there? And in fact, when you see us, you wear a veil. And Moses decides to put a veil in front of his face to cover the people from the glory of God. And they never get to see God. They never get to talk to God. And even the remnants of God's presence that are still on Moses' face, he says, I'm going to cover even those up because you can't walk in the presence of this great of God. Now what Paul's saying in this passage is those veils have to go away that no more is it okay for there to be a veil between us and God. You know, you and I are people that we want God, right? You're here this morning and you may not even be a Christian yet. You may not be interested in Jesus that you know of. You might be here because you want your kids to have a religious experience. You might be here because it gives a good vibe. I don't know. And you might be here because of Jesus. I, I have no idea why you're here. But Whatever the reason is, we often, because of Because of God's greatness, we like to think that we're in his presence. We like to be in church a little bit, but we want God to kind of sit over there. You know what I'm saying? We want there to be a little bit of distance between us and God, because when he gets too close, we find it uncomfortable. We find it uncomfortable. You know, people ask us, Tim and I are pastors, obviously, and we're professionals. Um, we, We wish we weren't. We have to tell you that, you know, when, pe- when we get on a plane or when people ask us what we, we do, I, I, I used to say I'm a teacher because I would teach the Bible and I thought I could get away with it because the last thing I want anybody to do is know what I do for a living. That's really true. Is that true of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is true. Yeah, we don't want to be known as pastors because when we're known as pastors, it's like the conversation changes. You know, when I moved into my neighborhood, I, I caught one of my neighbors walking past the front of our house, and he, was, he had a beer, you know, and he was walking to his other neighbor's house, and, and I saw him change hands with the beer, like he was sneak doing a quarterback sneak with the football. You know, and he had it over here, and he went like this because he didn't want to stand too close to us. I've got to tell you something. You have no less access to God, and neither does that neighbor with the beer, than me. Okay? There's nothing about a degree in Bible that gets you closer to Jesus. What gets you closer to Jesus is when you come to Christ. Look at what this verse says. In verse, I'm going to read from 15 and 16, it says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Now listen to this. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. My conviction, my belief, is that people sit in church, even pastors, and we walk around with veils covering our face, where the real Jesus is kind of hidden from us, over and over and over again. And this passage tells us that the only way we're ever going to see God and get past this, the only way we're going to develop an intimate connection with God, which is what he's called us to, the only way we're going to sense, feel, walk in God's presence is when we turn to Jesus, when we do business with Jesus, when we give what's inside of our lives that's gone wrong over to Jesus. And the, passage, and the, the scriptures tell us that he never looks at us and goes, you've gone too far, I'm not going to accept you. What the scriptures tell us about this Jesus is when we turn to him and we say, let's do business with God, he's always open for business. He's always willing to accept us into his life. He's always willing to come in and change us. It's just the fact that we don't ask. The word turn is used in this passage and across the Old Testament, the word turn is used over and over again. It's because people walk apart from God. And whenever he asks them to get close to him again, the word he uses is this word. It's turn or return. If you turn, and you can if you would like, no pun intended, to Joel chapter 2, there's a great example of this. Joel chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 talk about a group of people who need to turn to God. I'm going to read it for you. And there's some interesting language in it. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, yet even now, and I've got to tell you, I know where these people were. They had blown it with God in a huge, enormous way. Okay? They had really messed up. But he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, with sorrow, come back to me. Be sorry for what you've done. Turn to me. Walk in repentance. And when you do, rend your heart and not your garments. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to express really serious sorrow, what you would do is you would go to the city gates and you would sit there in the public display and you would rip your garments and you would take ashes from the local fire and you would put them on your head and everyone would know that you're grieving or you're sorrowful about something. The problem is that every time anybody does anything religious in a society, we kind of get in the habit of doing it. You know what I'm saying? And so people would do this, and they would be, it became a sign of like holiness. A really holy person was sitting in the temple gates, sorry for what they've done, with their clothes ripped and ashes on their head. Now, you and I might think that's ridiculous, but that's what they did. So God says, listen, don't tear your garments anymore. If you're going to walk in repentance, if you're going to turn to Jesus, rip your hearts. I don't want your garments. I don't want you to make an outward display. I don't want you to cry, stand, wave your hands, do anything in a worship service. What I want is for you to rip the inside of you open and let me have access to you. That's all I want. It's the simplest thing and it's maybe the hardest thing to possibly do. And so the passage tells us that what our job is, is to turn to Jesus, walk in repentance in front of Jesus. And that's how the veil gets torn away. And frankly, every year I find myself having to give up more and more and more pieces of my life. Things that I never knew were actually wrong, I realize now there's actually stuff that, it's not sinful, it's not evil, it's just stuff that God wants to help me with. And so I stand in his presence, and sometimes we we come in here, and Tim and I have actually done this. I'll sit here, Tim will sit here, and we will offer up pieces of our church to God. We'll just say, listen, God, we're not sure what to do with this right now, so we're going to turn it over to you because we're not smart enough pastors. We're we're, going to turn over pieces to our lives. Sometimes I sit by my kids' beds at night. I did this just last night, and I say, God, I'm not a good enough dad to lead these kids to you. Please, do something because I know they need you and I don't know how to get them there. And I sit before God and I say, listen, I'm going to sit and repent of the fact that I'm not good enough, that I've messed up, that I've done this, that, or the other thing. But what I'm asking for is the presence of God to and come into the relationship I have with my daughter or my son. I'm asking God to come into this church and change our Christian education program or our children's ministry or our worship or our preaching, whatever it is. And week in and week out, we pray different prayers like this all the time, asking God's presence to change us, come in and move. That's not where it ends though. So the first line is we're supposed to walk in repentance and we're supposed to get rid of the veils that way but then it goes on and it gives kind of a more hopeful thought. The first one is get rid of stuff. The second one says now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. We're supposed to walk in freedom. You know, I have... Tim, forgive me for this. You weren't in the first service and you didn't hear it. But if you walk up on Tim's right side and you pick on him, I find that he has a knee jerk reaction of hitting me. You just like, you know, you could kind of poke him and he just, you know, go, does like that. And we've been friends since, we've had five years of friendship since 1995. How's that? <laughs> we met in 1995 and we started to be friends in 98 and we got back to being friends last month no anyway you know we have have, we're great friends tim's one of my closest friends so i can come up and i can poke him and on the right side you know he hits me that's what happens but i've learned since this surgery that he doesn't have the range of motion with his left arm and i can come up alongside him and i can do stuff and then he he reaches out and his, his arm gets to about here and that's it you know what i'm saying and it just like grimaces, and then he looks at me with a nasty glare, you know? And it's just wonderful. I mean, it's an angle. I got, a, I got a shot. You know, our spirits are like that. They're built to handle a range of motion that's amazing. When God talks to us, we're built to be people who respond in our hearts. You know, there are people in our church who are just gifted worshipers. We have this lady uh, named June in our first service. And every now and then, you could just see she came to worship. And we'll be singing a hymn or something, and she's 80-some years old. Now, when I was growing up in church, if you put your hands above, like, right here, I think the ushers came and took you out and connected you to a, you know, a, a certain sort of facility where you could spend the next six weeks getting help. Anyway, but, but this lady is 80-some years old, and she's got her hands up like this. And every now and then, she's just like... I'm blessed. I can't help it. You know, she just starts worshiping, you know. And, and you're like, wow, that, that's pretty amazing. She's worshiping. She, and you can just tell it. It's all over her face. She's probably got her eyes shut. She's not going to notice you. She's just there to worship Jesus. You know, sometimes for us it's the hardest thing to have that range of motion in our spirit when God starts to work on us and he says, why don't you just worship me? Why don't you just spend some time in prayer? Why don't you honestly just open the Bible and read it at face value and believe in it? And we're like, no, we got questions. We want to check this stuff out. We're not really sure about God. We're not sure if we really want to engage emotionally this morning or if we just want to kind of sit here. We don't know if we really want to connect with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We don't have that range of motion. And to the extent that we don't have that range of motion in our hearts and our lives, we're like Tim's arm, you know? We can't actually respond to God with all of what he's called us to use to respond to. We have, a, we have a really hard time getting out of our prescribed territory. We're like, church should only stay in this little spot. I've got six other days a week. Don't mess with those six days. Just ask me to be here for an hour. And if the sermon goes long, uh, you know, you get a little iffy. It's because our spirit it's not responding to God. So we're supposed to walk in repentance before Jesus and get rid of the veils in our lives, but then we're supposed to walk in the freedom of living in the Spirit and connecting over and over and over again with God. In another book in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, the same writer is in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. When I was a kid, I was like, Oh, no. You know, there was this time of our service where this guy named Dan prayed. And when Dan, I'm not saving his name, by the way. That's really him. I I know Dan right now. He's a truck driver. He's a good guy. But I still need to throw him under the bus. So, you know, when this hits the Internet or wherever we send these sermons, I hope he's listening. Anyway, Dan would pray, and he would pray for, like, we used to time him. He'd pray for, like, eight minutes, you know. And the guy next door to me would be, like, sleeping. And I thought, if we start praying without ceasing, you know, Dan will go forever, you know? And that's what I used to think when I was in middle school and high school. Oh, man. But that's not what that verse is about. What that verse is about is when we live within sight of Jesus, when the presence of God isn't just up on the mountain, where we haven't asked Moses to be the go-between, where we're actually up on the mountain ourselves, where we're actually walking in such closeness with him that while I'm talking to Terry Lewis, God's also there, and I know it. When I'm talking to my wife, God's also there and I know it. And we talk and kind of have a a prayerful posture in our existence. We live in that sort of angle. You know, we, I suspect, have underestimated the Christian life significantly when you think about that. God wants much more of us than we usually give him credit for. Jesus gives this great promise in one of the Gospels. He tells us, that if you ask anything in my name, if you ask God for anything in the name of Jesus, then you will get it. Now, I have asked for things in the name of Jesus and not gotten them. I've got to tell you. I've asked for people to be healed and they haven't been healed. I've asked for people to come to know Jesus and they have yet to come to know Jesus. Why do you think that is? I believe it's because my spiritual frame of reference, the range of motion in my life, is still not there. It's that I'm still responding like Tim's arm. God's telling me what to pray, and I don't hear him all the time. Sometimes I walk apart from them and I have to get back to this place and I have to get pl- back to the place where I repent before Jesus and I say, I've got a veil in front of my eyes. I continue to see other things besides God. I'm direct, or I'm indirectly connected with Him, but not directly. There's no intimacy. We're missing what God has called us to. There's all these promises in the New Testament and periodically people read those things and they're like, that is ridiculous faith. No, it's not ridiculous. It's just very, very idealistic. It's very hopeful. It's the thought that the children of God who are born with the image of God implanted in their lives have a dignity that's far beyond what you and I usually expect them to have. We are blessed much more than we usually want to give God credit for. And so what he's calling us to in this passage is, listen, press into the presence of God, press into the walk with Jesus Christ, because when you do that, the world will change. And frankly, for most of us, the world doesn't change. And the reason why is because we haven't pressed in far enough. There's still more to go. There's still more closeness there for us. There's one, more, there's one more last point in this passage, and I'm just going to read the last verse of the chapter. It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In the ancient world, there weren't actually mirrors. It's not like this big glassy thing. You go in the restroom and you look at your reflection and you kind of figure out whether your hair looks good. I don't go in there. I don't like to see my hair. You know, it's just a bad scene. But, but in the ancient world, they had these mirrors and they were usually pretty small and they were just kind of pieces of glass and those glasses were cl- the glass was cloudy and it wasn't actually the mirrors where it just reflected an image. You could actually kind of see through it too. It's like stained glass, if you will, but the stain would have been gray or dark brown or something like that. So what you're looking at when you see through these windows pains what well, might be you know somebody you know but you might not even notice that you know them you know what i'm saying what paul says in this passage is listen we're supposed to stare at jesus and frankly when we start looking it's like looking through one of these dark pieces of glass we have a hard time seeing him. We look through it and we see something. We see a little bit of a glow. We see a God who's there distantly, but we have a hard time pressing in. And it takes months and years to get to the place where we experience God as much as we want to. And at first that glass looks cloudy and dark and it's a tough walk. But eventually as we stare and grow closer with Jesus, we're changed. And we go from an old version of glory. We're all created with a certain amount of glory. We're all created in the image of God. But as we stare at Jesus, we grow more and more and more altered. We grow more and more changed and transformed according to this passage. And it says, listen, according to how much you're going to look at Jesus, in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us that we're to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. If we're going to spend time looking at Christ, if we're going to spend time growing in Jesus Christ, then we're going to start to look like him. You ever see a husband and a wife, they get married, they look nothing alike, and after 25 years, you know they, they're just kind of the same sort of person. They, wear the same, you know, they shop from the same catalogs, they eat the same food. I'm not going to make any comments, but we do this. You know what I'm saying? Shelby eats like Josh, and Josh eats like Shelby, and we start to grow more and more alike. You know, What we look at is what we become right? It's really true. You are what you eat. You are what you read. You are what you're focused upon. And when we focus on Jesus, it's as true as anywhere else. When we look, and it's a tough job, but when we look through this glass, and it's a, it's a distant walk. He's up on the mountain. God is so much greater than us. We have a hard time looking. And frankly, we find it uncomfortable because we find things in our lives that need to change. But as we continue to get rid of these veils, and as we continue to walk in the Spirit of God, and as we get to the end and we start to grow in glory, we find it very possible to walk in Jesus Christ's presence. And the glory that we used to have is exchanged for this whole new life, People like this are fun people to be around. We start kind of wanting God. We walk through a process of needing and working to kind of get God. And by the end, it becomes this effortless, joyful, presence-filled walk. You know what I'm saying? We had this lady in our first service. She died this past year. She's about four foot eight. Literally, four foot eight. And I used to go visit her. She was 90-some years of age. She's up here at Manitani Manor. And I would go visit her, and we would read the passages about the final glory, the new heaven and the new earth. We would sit there, and we would talk about this glory that was to be and I would read that passage and I would talk about the new heaven and the new earth and us all getting new bodies and us all living in a perfect world where the ecosystems didn't have oil spills and all that. you know. And we would, go, we would talk about all this and I would say to her, Bobby, do you think in the new heaven and the new earth when you get your new body, do you think that you're going to be taller? And she looked at me and she said, do you think in the new heaven and the new earth you're going to get new hair? Bobby could always get me, you know what I'm saying? When we walk in the presence of God, we have a whole lot to look forward to. We have to walk in repentance to get rid of the veils that disconnect us from Christ. We have to walk in the Spirit to develop the spiritual range of motion that allows us to respond to God so the conversation doesn't just go one way. But then finally, we have to look and stare and walk in the presence of God, observing Him, watching Him, seeing Him, living inside of Jesus in order to be transformed from glory to glory. That word transformed only takes place in the New Testament four times. 27 books, and it only takes place four times. The first two of them are the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus climbs this mountain with his disciples, and he's changed into this glorious picture of himself. Remember that? And the disciples are so struck by what they see in this moment. They're just absolutely amazed by Jesus because he looks like a normal guy one minute and the next moment he's talking to Moses and Elijah and he's standing up on this mountain. You can turn to the Gospels and look after the service if you want. But this passage tells us that we're supposed to be transformed like that internally. People who knew us ten years ago shouldn't think we're the same people ten years later. Tim told you last week. Was it last week? You started talking about. You're like, I hope you didn't know me when I was a high schooler. Yeah, that was a a great message because Tim's like, you know, I I hope you weren't around for those years. Some of you were, I think, and you know, you suffered the consequences. But that's really true. The evidence of somebody walking in the presence of God is not that they're perfect; it's that they're changed. There's a real difference. It's that when you look back six months and you can still see you're the same person, there's something wrong. Children of God are people who are moving closer and closer into God's presence and they're becoming more and more like Jesus as a result. This is the first Sunday of a new year. And in the first service, I actually claimed this. I think it's the first Sunday of a new decade, right? Do you start the new decade with 2010 or 2011? I'm just going to say it. It's a new decade, okay? And this is the first chance we get to kind of share the word in this new decade. And there's something about the first time you get to do anything, right? And so what I want to say is, what if Parker Ford Church was a place where we all decided we just want to know Jesus as much as possible this year, this decade? What would it look like if we were people who pressed into the presence of God to the extent that we got rid of all this veils, we didn't trust pastors and other people to go to God for us, we just went there ourselves. We spent time, effort, and got rid of all the junk in our life that was keeping us from knowing Jesus and walked into his presence and said, this is my highest goal. I want to know Jesus more than I want to have a good marriage. I want to know Jesus more than I want to be a good parent. I want to know Jesus more than I want to be successful at my job, more than I want to have free time, more than I want a vacation to Disney, more than I want anything else. I want Jesus. What if that was our goal this year? What this passage says is we would go from glory to glory. This church would be changed. And when people walked in the doors, they would realize that it's not a something or a somebody out there that we worship. It's someone, and he's here today. We are called to be people who walk in the presence of the living God. Anything less is a scandal in light of what Jesus has done for us. Anything less is a scandal. This restores the image. I'll close with this, but the picture of the image of God is so beautiful. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walking in the twilight of the day. In the twilight of the day, God comes down and he would walk with them. You know, like me and my son walking around the block. Can you imagine just walking in that amount of closeness, just asking questions, just talking, going, God, what do you want to do with my life? And the conversation would be like a man with his friend. That's what the Bible says. Wouldn't that be a great picture if we could develop our relationship, if we stared at Jesus so long that the glass went from cloudy and stained to clear so we could see him personally? Join me in prayer.